So we're joined by Sean and Amanda today. Awesome. This is the first time we had all three of us. Well, yeah, and I'm, I'm Derek, Yeah, as always. It's weird to introduce yourself. Is it the first time that we've done all three of us? Yeah. I think so, yeah. Mm-hmm. Huh. What should we talk about? <laughs> Podcast starts are always fun. I mean, I, I hear you have a burning topic in mind. <laughs> sure. So the last episode that went out, I was talking about how I had done the first bit of Elm work I'd ever done. So I've been doing a little bit more. So that first bit was mostly just like editing some Elm to introduce some new parameters in places. And it was pretty straightforward because I just had to like follow the compiler. But this was like my first change where I actually, it was like a new feature I was building. And so I had to build some UI and I had to build some events and handle those events and then build the back end for it and things like that. So it was my first exposure to that. And I started with like, okay, I know what this feature needs to do. I know it's going to need some UI and some Elm and it's going to need some Rails controllers. So I know that like I should test drive this and I should start with a test, but I'm really kind of afraid of how to start this Elm work. So I started by implementing the backend that I thought it was going to need. I was like, this is a reasonable thing to do. I'll just implement the API controllers it's going to need. And so I implemented them. I test drove them with like some request specs. I felt really great. I was like, look at me. I'm test driving things, taking small steps, letting it tell me like, hey, this controller doesn't exist. And then creating the controller and then saying the action doesn't exist and creating the action, the whole thing. And I'm feeling really good about myself. I got done. I committed it. And then I was like, okay, now I need the UI. And then immediately was like, oh, that's not the API. I need. <laughs> because like once I started to think about the API, I was like, okay, now I need the, uh, the UI. So once I started to think about that, I was like, okay, I should write a feature spec that like exercises this from the top down. And as soon as I did that, I was like, oh, this is an entirely different API. <laughs> so that was a fun lesson in, uh, even if you're not quite sure what to do, starting from the outmost, like I was trying to be good by test driving something, but I didn't start high enough up. So that was a bummer. It didn't have much to do with Elm at all, other than the fact that I just don't know Elm very well. So I was intimidated by it. But once I actually started, Chris helped me. We pair, we've been pairing a lot because neither one of us knows Elm very well. But when we put us together, we feel like, you know, we've got enough knowledge to figure this out. And it's been really good with the exception of the, the part where you have to write HTML calling Elm functions is kind of obnoxious. (laughs) Just uh, like syntactically ugly or difficult? It's just both, I think. I mean, it's not overly difficult. It's just like if you're calling a div. So the div function takes two lists. And the first is a list of attributes. So you can say like class and on click and whatever. And then the second is the contents of the tag. And so anytime you get to the point where you're nesting tags, it's kind of like when you're writing Lisp. And you're like, wait, how many close parentheses do I need right here before I open the next one? So it's the same kind of thing. And it's helped yeah. out. It's helped a little bit by Elm format. So like I have Elm format running in the background where like I just hit save. And as long as I'm at a point where I'm syntactically correct, Elm format will do something reasonable for me. And then I'm like, okay, I can see what's going on. And then I keep going. But if I'm at a point where it's not syntactically correct, it just throws its hands up. And it's like, I don't, I can't make sense of what's happening here on this line. And I'm like, I know because I don't know where the closing brackets are. And like, <laughs> Is slash div really all that better? I think so. Yeah. Maybe it's just because I've seen it for so long. I, I, it's just like markups easier to read, I feel like, definitely than this. Sure. And like in talking to people here, the solution is like you just extract smaller and smaller functions and you don't do it for reusability. You, use it for, you do it for composability and making it easy to read. And that's right. nice. But like the approach I like to take is to start with the big thing and then extract to small things. So if writing the big thing is hard to do, 
that kind of blows that out of the water. So maybe I have to change my approach and just realize that like, I'm probably going to want to function for this. And then I'm probably going to want to function for that. And then just compose it that way instead. I don't know. I mean, it's also a lot easier to uh, do static analysis or build tooling around something that is static markup as opposed to a Turing complete programming language. <laughs> <laughs> sure. So th I have been enjoying all the static analysis I can get out of Elm. So like, sure. obviously the compiler does a great job and then Elm format does a pretty good job. So like, what I'm finding with Elm format is that there are multiple acceptable formats for any given code, and it doesn't always pick the most concise form, which bothers me sometimes. Like sometimes it'll split things over multiple lines and I'll just be like, that looks weird. What if I just join this all back to one line? And it's like, yeah, that's, that's cool too. So I wish it would kind of do a better job at picking the most concise acceptable form, but you know, it's okay. It's pretty good. And then today, just today I was playing with this tool called Elm Analyze, which goes beyond just the formatting and compiler stuff and does linting like like things that might be handled by the compiler as warnings in other languages like unnecessary use of parentheses and you know you assigned a name to a variable that you don't use you should probably use underscore or like whatever things like that so that tool is seems to be in its pretty early stages because it has it, it found a number it found like 385 things in this project that we could that we should fix and i was like cool and i started hunting through it i was like does it have some sort of like auto fixing and the code had like references to being able to automatically fix things, but I couldn't figure out how to do it. And it turns out the way you do it is like you start it in web server mode and then you click on each individual item and a modal shows up and says like, and then you click like auto fix. And then it runs the, the analyzer on the thing and you do it like 385 times or whatever. And that is obnoxious. Yeah. That's, I mean, yeah, that's not helpful. I think it's just because the state the tool is in, it's not like it sure. hasn't, they haven't gotten that far yet. They haven't, got, and some things just aren't auto fixable yet that clearly could be. Like if you yeah. import everything from a module, it warns you that like, hey, you probably shouldn't import everything from a module. You should import what you need. And theoretically it could tell what you're using and just fix that for you, but that hasn't been built yet. And so like, I, I just think the tool is not in a state where it's fully mature yet and it'll definitely get, there are open issues for these things. So it'll, it'll happen as, as long as people are interested in working on it. So yeah, um, that needs a command line interface though. Like there's yeah. a tool called rust fix, which is just the auto fixing portion of it. And it's basically like git add hyphen P's interface. And then there's a hyphen hyphen YOLO option. <laughs> <laughs> Does the Kotlin have these linting niceties to it? Yeah, the advantage of having a language developed by a tooling mm. and IDE team is that they have all this this nice stuff. They officially came out with the Kotlin style guides a couple of months ago now, but it had still been after months of me writing Kotlin, I think the community writing Kotlin. So some of the style guide stuff, I'm like, yes, I've been looking for a better way to format this. And other things, I'm like, this is not how I do it. And I don't know at this point, like if I want to switch over, like I believe in style guides. And I like, so that part of my brain is like, you have to follow this. The other part of me is like, this looks wrong. I don't know why, but it looks <laughs> wrong. I think that we need to move past style guides at this point and onto automated tools with no configuration. Mm. Yeah. Oh. Right. I you can write your code however you want. <laughs> right. <laughs> it just doesn't get committed that way. Like a universal translator type situation. Yeah. The project I'm on right now had, so they had their own like kind of bespoke Elm formatting that they were using. And the first thing, Joel was the first person from ThoughtBot that was working on this project doing Elm on it. And so the first, one of his first pull requests is like, here, I ran Elm format on the entire code base. And then it, it got pretty <laughs> quickly sh shut down because people that had been working on the code base didn't like the the formatting choices it was making which is understandable like i don't like all the formatting like it does like two new lines between functions which is like I, why mm. i don't understand like weird yeah. things like that but 
it does it consistently at least so you know and so it got shut down but then as more and more people started coming onto the elm code base the person who was who felt like strongest strongest about like no this is my style and i like it and i i don't like this elm format style got tired of having the argument about it about like oh yep. should we format it like this or like that and it's like let's just follow the tool and so we all kind of gave in to let's just follow the tool and there are certainly times where i'm like i don't really like that but okay like leading commas i just can't get used to leading commas but it wants leading uh, commas everywhere so it's like all right fine and it's a little weird when you write code and then you save it and it all changes and you're like uh okay sure and i guess yes. i'll probably i'll probably learn how to write it the way that the formatter wants it and i'll probably adapt to that eventually but i kind of like it just for the sake of like the conversation that it eliminates yeah. i guess if i yeah. if, if i had everybody on my team and we were already like yeah let's like you've been writing kotlin for years yeah. now and for yeah. them to be like here's the thing right change the way you write it is like it's a little hard so i feel, I feel like elm format came along pretty early in elm's that's good. life cycle yeah so, my issue good. with formatting too which i think is really hard and I, i'm sure this applies to a bunch of languages is in my mind there's two kind of ideals that you should be striving towards and one is like is it when you're writing it like in your id in your, in your environment is it like legible and how can you read it but then how does it look on github is the second one because all the underscores for unused like variables to me drive me nuts in code review because <laughs> i'm like i forget what the like properties of a function are and like in my id i can easily see but on github.com when you're reviewing prs you're like uh, just an underscore. I have no idea but, what's happening. Like, should you have used this thing? Like, I know right, that you're exactly. not, but should yeah. you have? Yeah, and I can see that. And I think some, I don't know what Elm would do, but like sometimes it's like in Ruby and RuboCop, as long as you start the variable name with an underscore, just to signify like, I meant, I didn't mean to use this. Like, uh, yeah. or I meant not to use this. So you could call something underscore and then like a good name for it, right? And so yeah. like in case in case at some later date you start using that variable, you know what it is. And that's okay. But also like maybe it's not so bad that you just have this thing here that doesn't get used. I don't know. I yeah, know. I started learning iOS a little bit ago and I was reading the Swift style guide, which I think everyone should read. I think it's just an interesting, they just, they're very opinionated. And whether you agree with mm -hmm. them or you don't, it's always interesting to read something from a position of we have thought about this and this is what we've decided and here's why. And it comes from a place of English and it's, they believe everything should be readable. And so in functions, you have basically two names you get to use for each parameter, one for what the caller will use and one for what you get to use internally inside the function, which is so nice. And now I like I'm trying to write my functions that's so, like they read more like English but you do reach a point where you're like the caller will not understand what this means like if you name a variable to or from like inside the function you're like what but from the call side it makes sense and that trade-off is like that's something I wish the Colin had which is the two names because that also on GitHub reads so much nicer because it like you're allowed to keep the English while using different names yeah but you can do that without syntactic support like you could just immediately assign it to a new name as the first line of the function yep yeah, absolutely. I've had that same problem with Ruby now that Ruby supports keyword arguments is like, I want to build these nice interfaces where like, it, there's a class level method that's like, perform this action, you know, from to, right? And, exactly. But then yeah. it makes no sense inside the function where you're and I, I hate having to decide like, okay, am I going to use names that like really make a nice literate API for the caller? Or am I going right. to like optimize readability of this method? Or yeah. am I going to do the thing where I spend the first two lines of the function redefining what these things are? Exactly. Method, I guess. And I hate having to make that decision. I wish I, yeah. it is. I, I had not heard of languages that allow you to call, call something one thing, or if I had, I'd forgotten, call something one thing to the caller and another thing internally without having to do the yeah. manual reassignment. I think that's really cool. Well, like Swift and, and iOS kind of cheat because it's not so much that it has a different name for the caller. It's that how it appears to the caller is part of the very, is part of the function name itself. Hmm. Interesting. 
you know, because it's like it's like init foo with bar, but the with bar and and you know the arguments just get interspersed throughout the function name, but they're not necessarily quite the same as keyword arguments in that they literally are just part of the function name. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know. I say get on board the Kotlin train. Get on board the Kotlin formatter train. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because Rust format showed up. I think it actually started to show up pretty early, but more as like a here's a highly configurable tool and, and sort of the we're going to have the official style with an RFC process if you want to change it came pretty late. And it's even still only just now starting to really gain adoption. But when they introduced like here's the official style, they made a really uh at the time controversial change because it was a style that literally nobody had been writing at the time. Because Rust format's pretty good about optimizing for Git churn, which is typically what I care most about, is is just having a line not change an unrelated line. And so one of the big things is that generic functions or trait implementations tend to have a where clause. I think Elm has where clauses too, right? If it does, I haven't used them. It has like let and in and things like that. But Okay. I mean, I know Haskell does, mm -hmm. right? Where you're saying like where these properties are satisfied. Kotlin has it. Maybe yeah. it's not where in, in Haskell. Kotlin does. And so a lot of people, like, there were kind of two styles of what people would write. So it'd be like people who would put the where on the line above all of the items. So it'd be like function foo, where, new line, case one, case two, case three. And then, the, and then there were people who would put it a line below and align all of the, all of the uh, items, you know, after the word where. But that sucks because then if you remove, you know, the first, the first line, then you have to, you know, move the second one up and you get, and you get get churn. And so I was a big advocate for put it on the same line. What they ended up deciding on was it's on its own line and that line is not indented. So it's like function, foo, new line, same indentation as function, the word where, and then all of the clauses, which after using it, I really liked, but I just remember that was a thing that like nobody was writing that, that, that form. And it was rather, it was kind of controversial change when they introduced it. My hope is that you just eventually, if you go with these things, you just eventually get used to them and the value of the consistency and not having the not having the yeah. discussion win out. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah. I, I looked through it when we first switched diesel over to using it just to make sure it didn't do anything super crazy, specifically because like I was looking for bugs. But nowadays, I just don't even care or pay attention anymore. I write, I write some code and you... The funny thing is that when I don't want to care about style and I'm just tr trying to hack a thing out, especially when I'm writing like long sets of test data... It's actually kind of nice because I no longer have to care about making sure that I'm writing code in a good style. I can write as <laughs> sloppily as I want and then the tool will clean it up. Somebody did hear about our conversation or, you know, somebody heard about our conversation because they listened to our podcast. Uh, <laughs> they got in the top secret podcast files. Yeah. <laughs> People actually listen to this show and they wanted to know there was a thread. So they, they specifically wanted to know our opinion on, I guess, something's happening in Elmland where... There's this idea of native code in Elm, which is like how you get Elm to write JavaScript for you, I guess. And there's been a decision that starting with Elm version 0.19, things that used to be Elm.native.whatever are going to be kernel, and that's going to be off limits for anything but like official Elm code, that you're not going to be allowed to use that anymore. We'll post a link to the Reddit thread. The thread is, do we need to move away from Elm? And so I asked people here who do more Elm development than my one or two pull requests, like, can you explain to me what's going on here? So to the person that was curious about what uh, people at ThoughtBot thought, the feeling is mostly that it's a lot of FUD and that it'll probably be fine and that interfacing with JavaScript is fine through ports, which is like the officially supported way that you can do things. And maybe there's some things you won't be able to do, but you know, there might be some transition for some people, but that largely this is a fine thing. So I don't know. I'm probably not the right yeah. person to comment on it. I don't know if you guys have seen that or have any feelings on 
on that. But I mean, the, the the getting rid of the native module doesn't seem funky to me. I mean, as long as there is some other form of interop with JavaScript, like uh, that module, it's no different than like the Rust compiler not allowing access to LLVM intrinsics unless you are, you know, implementing the compiler. Because sure, the compiler, ha- you know, needs to do certain things that, that normal code doesn't. The thing I found more interesting in the thread was specifically the reason that the, the person was needing to do native code in the first place was because of bugs in the WebSockets library that there are like pull requests that have been sitting around for years. And that's the one that I found really interesting because just looking through the thread, it's not nobody's talking about like, why isn't the Elm team moving on this? It's why isn't one specific person moving on this? And it sounds like the whitelisted list of things that will have access to that kernel module are basically mostly repos only maintained by this one single person. And that's for something that's getting as popular as Elm is very surprising to me. Yeah, they're specifically talking about Evan, who is the creator of Elm, I think. So I don't I mean, he clearly has access to everything. I don't know if other people I don't know enough about the Elm community and who's involved in all of these projects that are going to be blessed and not so yeah i mean i guess there are some problems there and hopefully if those pull requests are good that hopefully they would routine or even if they're not they would receive some attention either a thumbs up or a thumbs down yeah one way or the other so people could plan accordingly but that's why it just it sure seems like there is an issue of uh sustainability there in that you know if there isn't somebody around to give a thumbs up or a thumb down on a pull request at some point in two years there maybe there should be a focus on getting more contributors more contributors specifically who you then promote to the point where they have the ability to merge pull requests without you needing to to give input. That was one of my first priorities with Diesel was getting to a point where we had a core team size of greater than one. That's always good. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. So the feeling seems to be from, you know, we write a decent amount of Elm here and that wasn't really something that was registering for us. But I can see the frustration that you talked about that, you know, this person has around. They feel like they have some changes that would be valuable for this library and they're not getting any input on them. So, you know, and then can... specifically they can't use their fork. Right, right. So they'll just have to fork the compiler too, I guess. (laughs) Yeah. You know, Rust's sort of solution to this, right, is they have features that are only available on the nightly compiler. So you actually can go in and get access to LLVM intrinsics and normal code if you want, but your code will only work on a nightly compiler, which you are now opting into my code can break between versions for no apparent reason. And and it's not just like you compile your library with the nightly compiler. Anybody who uses your library also has to be using a nightly compiler. Maybe Elm could look at doing something like that. Yeah. Or you can compile your compiler with a flag that says, like, allow native access or something like that. Yeah. That would be okay. I mean, if you're compiling from source at that point, you may as well just... Change the source and fork. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, change that one line that's like, only these repos are allowed to include your repo. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Do you want to talk about your down period before you're feeling like a genius, Amanda? Oh, me? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know how we I don't know how we segue, but yeah. But I think it's Uh, nothing on this show is very terribly exciting. But (laughs) yeah, when we were uh, brainstorming things we just wanted to talk about for a few minutes before the show, I mentioned that I was going through a period of I feel like I'm an idiot and everything I'm writing is bad and stupid and ugly. And then my experience is such that normally after these periods, you go through a wave of I'm a genius. No one's ever discovered the way to solve this problem, which they definitely have. And it's it's frustrating, I think, just because you know that it's temporary. But it doesn't change the fact that every day you're like struggling to do what seem like very simple things. But because they seem so simple, I just I literally bike shed for just hours on things that just don't matter. But very much in the weeds on that right now. Yeah, I think this week I saw a tweet from somebody. I can't remember exactly what it was. It was like a laptop sticker that was like, 
I hate programming. I hate programming. I hate programming. I hate programming. It works. I love programming, <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> which yeah. is like, I remember the first time feeling that was like during computer science courses at school and being like, this is like staying up late to do homework on a weekend where I'm like behind in a class. And I'm like, this is awful. I hate this. This is the dumbest assignment ever. I, I'm never going to need to do this in my job. This is so bad. And then it gets, and then it works and you're like, look at me. Yeah, I yep. did that. I made that ball bounce across the screen. Like, <laughs> yep. <laughs> you know? I think it comes from, so I was starting to learn iOS and there's, because I've been doing Android development for so long, I was really drawn to all the things that I think iOS does better. And there are things that I think it does worse, but it's so easy to be attracted to the things it does better. And so now when I'm like on client work, working on Android projects, you're like, every time I get to one of those things, I'm like, if I just did iOS, this wouldn't be a problem. But like, there would be <laughs> other problems. And it, it, you know, it's a grass is always greener kind of situation. And so trying to like take what I like about iOS and try to just make it work on Android. But some of it is hard. The big difference being and I think this is the thing that I just kind of want to get to because I feel like it would really help with testing is in Android, you can't instantiate your own activities. And that is going mm. to forever be the worst part about Android development. And on iOS, you can create your own custom constructors for your view controller. So you can inject it with whatever you want. And, and you know, this is how this object is being instantiated. So not having control over something like that, like you're just constantly coming up with creative ways to essentially fight the framework. And like, I'm just very tired of it this week. So it sounds like you're tired because... You were shown something that in some way might be better, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. And I can definitely sympathize with that. Like before this project, having looked at Elm code and like looked at compiler, like compiled languages and like talked to people about uh, Sean th about things like Rust and hearing from you and other people about Kotlin and Swift and like being like, oh man, that sounds really great. And being like, I, that would solve all my Ruby problems, right? And yeah. then like... Now somebody's like, here, okay, yeah, go ahead, work on this Elm thing. And I'm like, I can't make a UI. <laughs> I'm, like, <laughs> you know, I'm, like, I'm like, oh, man, if this was server rendered from Ruby, I'd be done with this change by now, right? <laughs> yep. So I'm a little bit in that same, like, I don't know how to do anything. I thought I was a good programmer, and turns out I'm just good at Ruby, and yep. I don't know anything. But then, like, it, it does. Like, today, when I finished this change with Chris, and I was like, oh, we made, we made a whole feature, and it's, like, it's pretty good. And yeah. Like I don't like we used the language the way it's supposed to be used, for, I think, and <laughs> yeah. you know, felt good. So I think that's the problem too. Is I tie my like happiness or like my personal opinion of like if something was implemented properly or if like this is good code is so much tied to like are you playing along with the paradigms and like the way the framework wants to be used, and like mm -hmm. that feeling is just hard when you're like angry at it and you're like please work the way that I want you to work. <laughs> <laughs> right. And when you know something well enough, you have like when you know you know Android as well as you do, you have to decide like you're like okay, I could I could make this do what I want it to do, right? Right. But like, is it worth it? And you have to decide that about everything that you hate. Exactly. <laughs> right? like, so it's like every it decision, that? every line, you're like, is it worth it? Do I like this? So. Right, and that's my relationship with Rails right now. Is like, should I fight this? I know what the downsides of this approach are, but the upsides are that everybody knows how to do this approach, right? Yep. And that's basically everything. And for the yeah. most part, I've settled into the things that I am willing to fight against, and and everything else. Just be like, yep, that's writing Rails. This is what the, this is what this is what Fisher Price tools yeah. are, in the words <laughs> of Vanity Fair. I think that also like it affects the code too because we're consultants, and so there's a very very real world where I roll off this project, and another Android developer has to come on, and I, the last thing I want is for them to be like, what was she smoking? You know, like this is all <laughs> so crazy and random and not you know convention. So there's a fine line between like if it's tdd and it's clear and it's concise do whatever you want 
But if it's going too far and it doesn't make sense to someone, then you're like, eh, is this really the right way to do this? Is this the right way to consult? I'm not sure. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. But yeah, enums are nice. <laughs> That's my That was my biggest thing about iOS that I think I like the most as compared to Android. I just learned the other day from the Android documentation that if you add an enum, just I don't know how, how many cases, but an enum to your uh, application that can add up to like one, I think it was megabyte to your app size. And so the Android framework has very few enums and they use just right. static ints everywhere, which at the time you're like total 50-50 decision. But as someone who's implementing, it would be really nice if I could see all the possible options. And like you can go to the documentation and look, but type safety would be very nice. In iOS, everything is an enum. And so it's when you're learning a new language, like I was learning iOS, it's really helpful to see for something like all the states, for example, to have all the states in one enum, you're like, oh, here are all the possibilities. This is so great. I can't possibly pass the wrong value here. Whereas in Android, yeah. it's like two, four, or seven. Good luck. Oh, and they control the VM is the thing. Like, yeah. they could very easily just make an enum and a static int identical in terms of performance. Right. And they even have sometimes, like, uh, one thing I remember a couple times I was looking at, like, constants that just felt completely unnecessary i don't remember exactly what it was but it was a string value i just remember and it was literally just a string that had the same value as the constant name yep and it's, it's one thing where it's like yes it's an element of an of a c like enum where you know there's no data attached to it right. but you're just giving it a descriptive name versus just but you have the type safety and you know the known possible set of values versus like it's a string it's a constant you're yeah. really not going to change it yep what did yeah. you say how much does it add to your application if you use an enum I think it was, let me let me get the actual number for you because I couldn't believe this. I was recently playing around with the APK tool, which is awesome. I highly recommend it for all Android developers just to like see how I get my app size smaller. And one of the things they recommend in like a variety of tips is like avoid enums. I was like, I'm not going to avoid enums, but thank you for your thought there. <laughs> wow. Avoiding. So an enum is just a name for a integer right like <laughs> in java yes but like conceptually across all languages that's basically what it is right no uh swift and rust both use them to refer to some types yeah and swift is uh, okay. optional yeah i'm reading this article we'll have to link to it in the show notes but like android yeah. performance avoid using enum on android huh that's unfortunate to like Wild. have to avoid using a feature of the language oh it's one yeah. to 1. 1.4 kilobytes Oh, okay. All right. I thought you said megabytes originally. I, I, I definitely, I, I, I probably did, but yeah. I mean, it's not even just an Android thing either. Like, if you go look at a lot of the Android source code, there'll be a bunch of comments in places where there are a large number of static ints that are like, and we're using static ints over enums because effective Java said to avoid using enums. Because apparently it's a performance, it's a it's a runtime performance issue even on Hotspot VM. But actually, that's not, effect, Joshua Block's uh, effective Java, which is like seen as like the Bible, he says use enums and he recognizes that unless you're building crazy complex systems, you should use enums, like unless we're scalability. And he says like mobile phones is like one of the reasons why you might not, which is probably where most people are writing Java, or not most, but a good chunk of us are. But still, like the readability to me is so much more like important sure no i i agree with yeah you. but i'm not the one compiling android app so also that book is really old when he said mobile phone he meant something entirely different than the mobile phone yes. you have yep. today <laughs> yes he meant like those little silly games that ran on your flip phone or whatever yeah i also just hate though when you get like this propagation of yeah don't use this thing because of a performance issue when like why don't we just go fix the thing that makes it a performance issue right yeah i'm with you you know jvm not being open source doesn't exactly help with that but yeah. 
how long we've been going for here. Does anybody have anything else to discuss? I mean, is should we talk about pop tarts? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, if there was a cheese pop tart. Well, but you know, like you can have ravioli with like my son loves butternut squash ravioli. Like that's all yeah. he'll eat basically. Yeah. Would a blueberry a ra- ravioli be a pop tart? <laughs> <laughs> that's the real question. Are unfrosted pop tarts even worthy of the name pop tart? Doesn't a ravioli specifically have to have pasta? But what is pasta if not just, you know, flour and egg? <laughs> I mean, not something that you bake. <laughs> Possible. I mean, I, I can have baked ziti. There's pasta and baked ziti, right? Yeah. I mean, it, it doesn't it doesn't do the, the same first, thing but... as as bread when you bake it. it being my point. Okay. So if this whole internet thing doesn't work out, I really want to open a food store that only sells what some cultures call dumplings, what other cultures call either gnocchi or empanadas or every mm-hmm. uh, pierogies. But the idea is that every culture has their let's put meat or vegetables or just deliciousness inside of a little casing and just sell mm-hmm. them all under one roof. Well, you're in luck. We actually decided last week that the internet's done. We've ruined it and, oh, and we're just calling it now. Oh, so. yeah. I forgot about that episode. Yeah. You haven't, it hasn't <laughs> come out yet, but we did decide that the internet's done and we're all doing silly things with our lives and maybe we should do something else. So, yeah, I think the dumpling store... Uh, do you have a name yeah. yet? or No, I don't. Okay, yeah, good. No, if I did, you also don't want somebody squatting on the domain or anything. So Yeah. Well, the internet's dead, so you don't need right. a domain. It doesn't Never matter, mind. yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, we've ruined everything. All right. <laughs> <laughs> on that note. <laughs> Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm slash 146. As always, ratings and reviews on iTunes are much appreciated. If you want to tweet at us, tweet us at, at underscore bike shed. And if you don't want to tweet at us, feel free to tweet at, at bike shed and try to get them to give us their <laughs> handle or email us at host.bikeshed.fm. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. <laughs> this podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, San Francisco, New York, London, Austin, Raleigh, and Washington, D.C., let's build something great together.